This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. And welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. And uh, thanks for inviting me into your home. And uh, I'm delighted uh, to be spending my 50th birthday with you. Wow, how did that happen? I was um, out hoisting a few cups of cheer with some good friends of uh, mine and my brother David last night at the Miller Tavern here in Toronto. Victor Vigiani, my occasional co-host here on the program, was there, and Ali Siadatan, who's been on this program a number of times and uh, also on the TV show, The Conspiracy Show, was there. And my old college chums, Don and Ken and Tom and Dimitri and Derek. And this was supposed to be... It was billed as a guy's night out uh, just to gather for a few cups of uh, adult beverages and, uh, and so forth. And then... And then the mighty Aphrodite crashes the party and of course she's looking resplendent as usual and then suddenly of course my uh, my buddies are getting up and leaving the table and going over to sit with her <laughs> so i'm no longer the center of attention but i guess that's to be expected when you marry above your your station <laughs> anyway i was thinking about something uh, margaret atwood said uh, not one of my favorite authors, uh, but she said, um, uh, you know, as I'm looking around at my friends and my brother, and I'm thinking everyone else my age is an adult, and I'm merely in disguise. They say if you can make it to 50 without growing up, then you don't have to. So I think I made it. Uh, anyway, if you'll have me, I'd like to uh, continue to do this program for another 50 years. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I spoke with Joseph Farah the founder of WorldNet Daily and the producer of a fascinating and, I must say, chilling uh, documentary film. It's called The Isaiah 910 Judgment, and it's based upon the book The Harbinger, the ancient mystery that holds the secret of America's future, and it's by Jonathan Kahn. And in the book, Kahn asks whether it's possible this mystery is behind everything from 9-11 to the collapse of the global economy in 2008, and whether it's possible that God is now sending a prophetic message on which America's future hangs. Hidden in the 
ancient biblical verse of the book of Isaiah, the mysteries revealed in the harbinger are so precise that they foretell recent American events down to the exact days. The 3,000-year-old mystery that revealed the exact date of the stock market collapse of 2008, the ancient prophecy that was proclaimed from the floor of the U.S. Senate and then came true. It sounds like the plot of a Hollywood thriller, except it just might be real. So tonight, we're going to revisit the Harbinger and explore further the nine Harbingers which seem to be manifesting in America right now and and with profound ramifications for America's future and end-time prophecy. Jonathan Kahn leads Hope of the World Ministries and Jerusalem Center Beth Israel, a worship center made up of Jew and Gentile, people of all backgrounds, located in Wayne, New Jersey. His teachings are seen on television and radio throughout the nation and are known for their prophetic significance and the revealing of deep mysteries of God's Word. Jonathan is, as I say, the author of The Harbinger, the ancient mystery that holds the secret of America's future. Jonathan, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Good. Great to be with you, Richard. Listen, before we uh, dive in, I have to ask you, uh, going back to last year, when you were asked to uh, speak at the presidential inaugural prayer breakfast, and you delivered... Um, quite a remarkable speech, and and um, as the camera sort of panned across the room at those assembled, there were some people that were nodding in agreement, and then there there seemed to be some shocked looks <laughs> on a good number of people, uh, caused quite a commotion. And I'm wondering because again, you were talking about you know God's judgment and and how America has abandoned God. How was it that? Uh, that came to be, you were invited to speak, and and were they prepared? Did they know ahead of time what you were about to say? Well, I don't know if everyone knew or was prepared, but um, I got a phone call uh, from the committee doing the presidential inaugural prayer breakfast, and they said, you know, we want you to come, and I thought, okay, maybe I'll do a prayer for two minutes or something, and they, I said, well, how long do I have? And the woman said, well, how long do you want? I said, wow. So, um, so I, I didn't know if I was ever going to get a chance like this again. So I said, you know, I'm, going to, I'm not going to hold back, you know. Um, and there were, you know, there were congressmen and there were all sorts of people there. And, um, you know, I think, you know, I'm sure some people were shocked. And, uh, but, you know, um, you know, but overwhelmingly, you know, the people there, because they were there for prayer, or at least, you know, the believers who came, um, you know, they, you know, it was a pretty kind of an explosion at the end and after i did it you know um you know it, it really went viral and over a million people have seen it on the on the web if you if somebody wants to get an idea of it it's the if they just go to jonathan if they you know if you, you know, google jonathan Kahn inaugural or prayer breakfast they'll see it anywhere on the web but it was um we got a lot i mean incredible reactions and i and i was really i was tired <clears throat> tired i was sick i had no strength and it just kind of just it just went forward. And, um, you know, I think, I don't think anybody fully expected it, but, you know, I I knew I wasn't going to, I could not lose that moment. And you certainly did not hold back. And uh, I'm wondering, was there any response from the White House? Uh, (laughs) No. You know, people, people wonder if they saw it. Now, I would think that they have to be aware of something that, that, that was the the inaugural prayer breakfast, and even though the, the Obama was getting ready to be inaugurated, you know, and and actually that that 
you know, inauguration, the one kind of really evangelical or born-again uh, minister was ended up being pretty much banned from praying at the inaugural. And yes. so all the more I wasn't going to hold back, you know. So I don't know. I mean, we got reaction, you know, from people in government all over. We, we don't know about the White House, you know, because, you know, I, I would think that they have to be, you know, uh, going through the Internet for things like this. So I don't know. But, you know, uh, we've heard, well, with a harbinger and with this, we've gotten so much really response from really top members of the government, um, but we have not heard from the White House. Well, and you took that, uh, that that opportunity, again, at the presidential inaugural prayer breakfast to sort of lay out the, the premise that is laid out so nicely, not only in your book, The Harbinger, but also in the the, uh, the documentary, the Isaiah 910 Judgment. And as I mentioned in the intro, uh, I spoke with Joseph Farah a couple of weeks back, and we, we talked about the documentary, we talked about the nine harbingers, but for those that missed the program, uh, let's first start, uh, and we'll try to get through this fairly quickly so that we can move on to other matters. Uh, But let's quickly uh, revisit that particular uh, uh, verse in Isaiah. What does it say, and what is the significance? Yeah, well, the the key is, and again, you know, where the overall is, we're talking about an ancient mystery. It's over two and a half thousand years old. It goes, it's in the last days of ancient Israel, and nine harbingers, or nine prophetic signs, appear in the land that are warnings of judgment to come and that and ultimately the nation is going to be destroyed and but these are warnings because Israel turned away from the the warnings and the the eerie thing or the scary thing is the same nine harbingers are reappearing on American soil some with precision with exact uh, you know uh, exact uh, progression some have appeared in New York City some have appeared in Washington DC some have involved American leaders, some of them involved the President of the United States. The harbingers have affected, you know, the economy, the, the political realm. I mean, really, the future of not only every American, but really the whole world. And, and it goes back to Isaiah, as you said. And, and here you have ancient Israel, which is a nation that has known God, has been blessed by God, and then turns away from God. And then the, the harbingers appear. And the, the first harbinger is the the warning, which is a biblical pattern, is, is called the breach, and that is a, a strike on the land, and this comes in the form of an attack on the land, and literally, it's a it's a, a terrorist attack. It was by the ancient Assyrians, who are historically the fathers of terrorism. So this first attack, it's a strike, it's limited, it's temporary, it's a shaking, it's a wake-up call, but Israel does not wake up, does not turn back to God, and they make a a vow. They actually respond with defiance, and re- the prophet Isaiah records that vow, and it's a faithful vow, and it, it's, it's Isaiah 9:10. and what the people say is this. They say, the bricks have fallen, they're speaking of the attack, but we will rebuild with hewn stone. The sycamores have been struck down in the attack, but we will plant cedars in their place. And what, what they're saying, in effect, is you're not going to humble us, God. We're, gonna, we're not going to turn back to you. We're going to keep on our, our course of turning away from you. We're going to continue to defy you. We're going to continue to descend into immorality, and we'll do it even more strongly than before. We're going to come back stronger than ever by our own strength. And so that's the vow, and Isaiah records that this is really a critical, pivotal moment, this vow, because it's going to set the stage for judgment and destruction, because they don't, because they don't listen to the warning, 
they're going to it, the shakings are going to continue. The harbinger is going to appear, and and in the case of ancient Israel, it's going to be in, in a number of years' time. They're going to be wiped off the face of the earth, and the pattern is this breach, this first shaking before the the final judgment comes, or before the great shaking of the nation comes. Well, with America, America was also founded originally by the Puritans, dedicated to God for God's purposes. America's been blessed. I mean, above nations has been the most blessed nation with power, with prosperity. But America is also turning away from God rapidly, morally, doing exactly what ancient Israel did. America, as ancient Israel did, it call, is calling evil good and good evil, is promoting sexual immorality. Is You know, the ancient Israelites were lifting up their children as sacrifices. Well, America has literally killed over 55 million of its children, unborn children. And the same first strike, actually all the harbingers, but it begins with the first harbinger, which is this strike, has to be this warning strike, this shaking, which happens to America on September 11, 2001, when America's hedge of protection is breached. An enemy makes a strike. It's like, as with ancient Israel, it's limited, it's, it's uh, confined, and then it's over. And the nation is then given uh, really a, a chance to come back to God or to proceed on its course to judgment. And what happens with America is America does the exact same thing that ancient Israel does, and they basically respond in defiance. There's no real no repentance. There's no change of course. In fact, America grows farther from God since 9/11. And the same. That's when the harbingers begin, starting with that first one, but all. Nine of them appear, and we can we can briefly touch on some of them. Well, I remember, uh, and many of us will remember, in the immediate aftermath when the towers were came tumbling down, uh, we heard from people like Donald Trump saying, "You know, we're going to build the towers. We're going to build it. We should build it one floor higher." Yeah. You know, to sort of thumb yeah. our nose at the at, at the terrorists. We're going to build yeah. it. We're going to be. We're going to come back stronger. And Rudolph Giuliani, then the ma- the mayor yeah. at New York, said yeah. echoed the same yeah. thing. And uh, yeah, as we'll. It, it, yeah, it was repeated again and again, almost like a mantra. They're saying what they're they're saying exactly what the leaders of ancient Israel said, and it happened. I mean, again and again, and sometimes I mean, we'll see. It. I mean, it happened word for word, but they're doing the same thing. And the problem was, oh God, I mean, you know, it, nobody stopped. I mean, very few people stopped to say, well, is this is this a call? Is this but no, we're gonna you know we're gonna do it better, and that's exactly what happened. So one example, one of the harbingers is uh, is the fourth harbinger in the well, the fifth harbinger in the book is called the. The judgment stone, or the stone of judgment, and that is very simple. In the the vow that that the ancient Israelites made, they say the bricks have fallen. We will rebuild with with hewn stone. Now, the word in in the Hebrew there is gazit stone. It means a chiseled out, quarried out stone from mountain rock. The 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 people of Israel are saying we're gonna we're gonna build stronger and better, and we're gonna build with these big massive blocks of stone. They go to the mountains, they chisel it out, they bring it back to the ground where the destruction, where the attack happened, where the bricks fell, and it becomes their beginning of their defiance of, as you said, building stronger, bigger, taller than ever. Jonathan, well, I'm going to jump in yeah, here, take a time out, sure. we'll come back, and we'll uh, we'll continue on with that sure. harbinger. Jonathan Kahn, the harbinger, the ancient mystery that holds the secret of America's future here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Before its end as a nation, there appeared in ancient Israel a series of specific omens and signs warning of destruction. These same nine harbingers are now manifesting in America with profound ramifications for America's future and end-time prophecy. Jonathan Kahn is with us, the author of The Harbinger, the ancient mystery that holds the secret of America's future and also um, is uh, featured prominently, obviously, in 
the uh, the documentary based on the book, and it's called The Isaiah 9-10 Judgment. We were talking about the Gazit Stone, and again, yeah. in ancient Israel, after the Assyrians basically leveled uh, Jerusalem, the, uh, the, the in defiance uh, to God, they said, we will rebuild it, and they decided, I guess, to... to um, uh, to build this sort of foundation, carving yeah. something out of bedrock, yeah. and, and how does that mirror what happened in America yeah. during 9-11? Yeah, they go up to the mountains, they quarry out this, this stone, they bring it back to the ground of destruction, they begin the building. Uh, after 9-11, the people of New York go up to the mountains of New York, they quarry out a stone, it's a massive stone, it's 20 tons of rock, it's a biblical chisel, it's a biz- biblical gazette stone. According to the mystery, it's got to go back to the ground of destruction. They bring the stone to New York City, they bring it to ground zero, they lower it on the pavement of ground zero, they have a, a ceremony around the stone, they have the leaders of, of the mayor of New York and the governors of New York and New Jersey all gather around the stone, they pronounce vows of defiance over the stone, they say the stone represents America, we're going to come back stronger than ever, they have no idea what they're doing, they're reenacting the ancient drama of judgment of a nation and it goes he goes to the next thing I and mean, it goes right down the line in isaiah the next word or the next the next object is, is that people say the sycamores have been struck down now what happened is in the attack that happened this warning strike the literally the land was ravaged and the sycamore trees were struck down and this, this is a biblical sign of national judgment, the striking down of a tree and the uprooting of a tree and the striking down of the sycamore specifically. Well, what, how could this have anything to do with 9-11? Well, in the last moments of 9-11, as the last tower comes crashing down, it sends forth a shockwave. It sends forth a, a beam into the air. The beam strikes an object. The object is a tree. The tree is the sycamore. The sycamore is fallen down. The biblical sign of national judgment is struck down at the corner of ground zero. And it, it, the biblical sign is that it's a warning that a nation that is being warned, if it doesn't turn back, is going to be uprooted. The people in New York take the sycamore, they put it on display, they make a big thing out of it. They have no idea they're dealing with an ancient biblical sign of national judgment. And then the next thing, that, I mean, it's right down the ancient vow. It says, the next thing, it says, the sycamores have fallen, but we will plant cedars in their place. So the people of Israel, what they do is, they, they do another act of defiance. They say, okay, we're going to plant another tree right where the sycamores fell, they, but this is going to be not a sycamore, it's going to be a stronger tree, because we're going to show man and God that we're coming back stronger, like this tree. We're gonna, and so it is in, in the English, it says cedar tree, but in the Hebrew, it's Erez tree. And Erez can be a cedar, can also be a spruce. It means an evergreen conifer tree. Right, right. Specifically, a, a panacea is the actual term. Well, after 9-11, what, something strange happens. Two years after 9-11, in the, a tree appears in the sky at the corner of Ground Zero. Right, right at Trinity St. Paul Church. Yeah, yeah, at that corner, right where the, the sycamore had been struck down. And the, the tree is being lowered into the earth where the sycamore fell. It's replacing the sycamore. And the tree that it is is not a sycamore. It is a biblical Erez tree. It's the pine conifer, same tree of Isaiah, tree of judgment. They put it down. They have a ceremony around the tree. They call it the tree of hope. They, they pronounce basically another, like, speeches of we're going to come back, you know, better, and that you, we can't be conquered. And 
they have no idea what they're doing, but they're doing the exact same thing. It's, the, it's like a ceremonial act, and nobody's planning these things. I mean, the harbingers happen not because people plan it. They happen because it's like they have to happen. And it's going to get even more dramatic, because when you get in the book, that's the seventh harbinger. When you get to the eighth harbinger in the book, it is, it's called the utterance. And that is this, the actual vow of Isaiah that was uttered by the leaders of ancient Israel. And by doing so, they were pronouncing judgment on their nation. And actually, it leads to judgment. And they do it in the capital city, which was Samaria then. And they, they do it as a public act of defiance. Well, for this to come true, now, what would have to happen is an American leader would have to pronounce the vows in the, the, like in the ancient vow of defiance in the capital city, would have to do it publicly. And the question is, what American leader in their right mind is going to pronounce a vow of defiance or the vow of judgment or pronounce judgment on America? I mean, it's certainly not one running for office. And, you know, what one is going to do something that's going to mirror this ancient, you know, verse, which, by the way, most even Christians don't, didn't even know this verse because it's obscure. Well, here's the amazing thing. On the anniversary of 9-11, an American leader gets up in Washington, D.C. He's famous. He's running for vice president. He speaks to a congressional caucus. He is John Edwards. And as he gets up to the, to the pulpit or the bema or the, you know, the stage, he, he, out of his mouth, he says, there is a word that's, that, is, that is for us now. And the word that comes out of his mouth, he says, the bricks have fallen, but we will rebuild with hewn stone. The sycamore has been cut down. We will plant cedars in their place. He's quoting word for word the ancient vow of judgment. He's pronouncing judgment on America. He has no idea what he's doing. He thinks he's doing something of encouragement. But out of 30,000 verses, John Edwards, he pronounces the judgment on America. He's, he links it to 9-11, which is what has to be. It's to that attack. He... he outlines the harbingers, he actually, not only does he say it, but he builds his entire speech around the, the one verse of judgment. He goes on to say, where the bricks fell, we're going to put stones up, and where the sycamore was struck down, we're going to build, we're going to put the, the cedar tree. He doesn't even know it's actually taking place in America. And, you know, even more, like, incredible, on the day after 9-11, in the book, this is the ninth harbinger, this is the prophecy. Well, basically, that is that the the, the actual vow has to be spoken prophetically right after the events, and, it's, and what it says, it's going to say what's going to happen, and it's going to come true. Well, the day after 9-11, the American government gathers on Capitol Hill to give the official response of the nation before the world. And one man is chosen to do it, and that man is the head of the Senate, the Senate Majority Leader, Tom Daschle. He gets up to the, the, the podium. He's going to speak before the entire government, basically the Senate and the House gathered there, and he gives the, the response of America, and then at the end of his speech, as he reaches the crescendo, he says there is a passage in Isaiah that speaks to all of us now, and then out of his mouth he says, the bricks have fallen, we will rebuild with dressed stone. And he goes on to word for word pronounce the judgment uh, basically, without realizing what he's doing, from Capitol Hill now, it becomes, it's recorded in the annals of Congress as the response of America, that the, America's response was the exact same words as the response of the leaders of ancient Israel that brought destruction on that nation. 
he speaks of the of the tree being struck down. He doesn't even realize there's an actual tree that was actually struck down, the harbinger, the, the sycamore. He speaks of the stone that's going to go up, the Gazit stone. He doesn't realize that's going to happen three years later. It's like prophecy. He speaks of the replacing of the one tree with the other in this ceremonial act. It's going to happen two years later. It's all prophetic, and he doesn't know what he's doing. And, and at the end of his speech, what he says, Dashiell says, he says, this is what we will do. And he's referring to Isaiah 9.10. So it's eerie. He's referring, he's setting the course of basically judgment. And what he says is going to come true. And it's going to lead to the second manifest, the second shaking of America, which is going to happen seven years later. And, it's, and when that happens, it's not going to be the collapse of buildings. It's going to be the collapse of the American and world economy. And it's going to, behind this collapse, it's going to be amazing, but behind this collapse is another stream of ancient mysteries from the Bible that are so precise that they're going to actually pinpoint the exact day down to the hours of the collapse of Wall Street. I mean, it's amazing stuff, and it's exact. Jonathan Kahn is with us, the author of The Harbinger, The Ancient Mystery That Holds the Secret of America's Future. Uh, this second shaking uh, you're talking about, and, and I just want to go back uh, for a moment to uh, the sycamore, because what's fascinating is, of course, the 9-11 attacks, at least uh, in New York, uh, strike at the very heart of America's financial system, Wall yeah. Street. And, you know... Other than Central Park, you'd be hard pressed to find, you know, a lot of trees down in, uh, you know, yeah. uh, southern Manhattan. Yet the, the the one tree that is felled happens to be a sycamore tree. The other name of the sycamore tree is the buttonwood tree. We know it is in America yeah. as the buttonwood tree. Yes. And there is an interesting connection between Wall Street and the buttonwood tree that goes back to the the very yeah. beginning of yeah. of Wall Street. Yeah, there is there is a principle in the Bible that when judgment comes that the foundations are exposed. And the foundation with America, one of the foundations is of its financial superpower, is, as you said, Wall Street. And the thing is that Wall Street was founded um, basically with what was called the Buttonwood Agreement. And it was a covenant that was signed basically from a secret meeting of leaders in, uh, you know, in New York. This founds Wall Street. Actually, Wall Street was originally called the Buttonwood Association. Later was a change to New York Stock Exchange. Why was it called Buttonwood? Is because the, the agreement, the covenant, was founded under a tree. The tree is called the buttonwood. Well, the button. so this is the symbol of America's rise to financial superpower. What is the buttonwood? The buttonwood is the sycamore tree. The same, in fact, buttonwood means sycamore. So you could call Wall Street the Sycamore Association. That's the first name of it. It's the symbol. So here is the symbol of America's rise to financial superpower. And on 9-11, the same symbol comes back again, but in a different Form, it struck down. And, and so here is the symbol of, of America's superpower struck down. And so it literally is even foreshadowing the collapse of the American economy. And what it's saying is, it's warning that if America does not turn back to God, the American age as we know it will collapse just like that tree. And the amazing thing also is that they actually built a, a statue of the, that struck down Sycamore in the book, The Sixth Harbinger, and they, they put it on display. And the place where they put this uprooted tree, I mean, it's basically a symbol of, it's a statue of a tree uprooted. And where they put it, they didn't put it at ground zero, they put it at the end of Wall Street, the very street that is named after the sycamore, the rise of the sycamore, the living tree, is a now a dead, uprooted tree. You know, there's a warning in the Bible, the prophets, where God says, that which I have built up, I will break down, and that which I have planted, I will uproot. That is the warning. It's well, amazing. And I, and I've, I, uh, I was in New York uh, 
I guess, late 2011, and I saw, I went to Trinity St. Paul. I was shooting a segment of it there for the TV show. I saw this statue of this tree, and I had no idea what the significance of it was. I just thought, well, that's an interesting object art, you know, a piece of right. art. Uh, but then, as, as I discovered reading your book and in the documentary, Trinity St. Paul uh, is oh. is very significant yeah. in terms of the history of the United States. People don't realize, many people, yeah. that the first capital of the United States yeah. was not Washington, D.C. It yeah. was New York City. What is yeah. the role of Trinity St. Paul? Amazing. Well, amazing. Here's one of the and this all, everything goes back to the the mysteries in the Bible. And one of the one of the things in the the, the mysteries in the Bible it's called the mystery ground. It's one of the the chapters in in the Harbinger that kind of brings it home. And that is this: the principle is that when when judgment came to Israel, the destruction returned to the same ground where the nation was dedicated, consecrated to God. And that was the Temple Mount, where Solomon dedicated the nation to God. And he, he basically prayed for the future and all that. So when it returned, you know, finally when, it, when the destruction came to the Temple Mount, it was a sign that, it, you know, that the nation had broken the covenant, and that, and that basically God's saying, return, look at what's happened. And, you know, this, this all comes back. So the principle is, the judgment returns to the place where the nation was dedicated to God. So could there be a link to America in this mystery? And an amazing thing is there is. And that is this. America was the first day of America as a fully formed nation. It wasn't 1776. 1789, April 30th, when Washington, the first president, sworn in as president. It's the first time we had the government as we know it. And, and he's sworn in the capital city. He literally gives a prophetic warning of what's going to happen if America ever turns away from God, which is happening now. It's being fulfilled now, and it, and we don't have time to go into it. But that's actually one of the it's one of the key things here. Now, once he once he gives this warning and this speech, he proceeds on foot with the entire first government. They go to a place to dedicate America to God. So here it is. They pray for about two hours. The first government on the first day dedicate America to God. If we can find out where that is, we've got a mystery. This is the dedication ground of America. It's the mystery ground. Where was it? It was in the capital city, as you said, but it wasn't Washington, D.C. It was New York City, where exactly America was dedicated to God. The America's consecration ground is ground zero. America was dedicated to God on ground zero, that's where Washington was, that's where they all were. The ancient mystery is manifested, that the, the destruction returns to the same ground. In fact, that's the ground where the harbingers appeared. That's the ground where the sycamore was struck down, on America's consecration ground. That's the ground where they had that ceremony and put the other tree down. And in fact, on that day of 9-11, a shockwave goes forth from ground zero, and it strikes another place. It strikes Federal Hall, the place where Washington was sworn in and gave the warning of what would happen if America ever turns away from God. And it, it strikes Federal Hall. It puts a crack in the foundation of America's foundation. But all around ground zero, you basically everything is ruined every building is destroyed or ruined except one is protected which one it was the the little stone chapel where they dedicated america to god all right and we'll take a time out sorry jonathan yeah. we'll uh, take a time out yeah. come back we'll uh, sure. talk about the mystery of the shemitah here on the conspiracy show talking about the harbinger the ancient mystery that holds the secret of america's future with jonathan khan stay with us Welcome back. Good to have you aboard. Jonathan Kahn stays with us, the author of The Harbinger, The Ancient Mystery That Holds the Secret of America's Future. Uh, now, we, uh, we work uh, six days, Jonathan. The seventh day is the, the, the Sabbath or the Shabbat, uh, consecrated to God. It's a day to, to spiritually refresh, reconnect with, with God. And sort of in a similar vein, every seventh year, 
is is holy. It's the is that what they refer to as the the Shemitah, right? Yes, the Shemitah. Shemitah. That, is that that every seventh year was a Sabbath year in Hebrew. That's called the Shemitah, and on that year, it's basically. It's rest. It's basically an economic cessation, and you know they don't they don't sow, they don't reap, they don't buy or sell the the fruits of the field. And on the last day of the shemitah, it's called in Hebrew Elul twenty nine, and that is on that last day something very significant happens. All the nation's debts are wiped out, all the credits wiped out, all the financial accounts are wiped out, and it wiped clean. And it it was to be a blessing. But the thing is that. As Israel turned away from God, the blessing of the Shemitah, it turns from a blessing into a curse or a judgment. And that is to a nation that has driven God out of its life and basically has put money and other things out of God, the Shemitah comes back as manifest as a sign upon that nation or against a nation that strikes the financial realm of that nation. So what does that have to do with America? Well, America, and basically this, this, this mystery now, in the, Har- in the Harbinger, it's called the mystery of the Shemitah, and it, it basically affects not only America, it's affected everybody in the world. And, and it goes back to this ancient mystery. And what does it have to do with America? Well, America is not under the law, you know, of Moses, but as a sign of a nation under judgment, this is what the Shemitah is. And remember, the key here is this seven-year, basically, cycle or seven-year mystery. Well, what, you have two shakings. You have the 9-11, this, this physical shaking, and then you have the collapse of the American economy, which then collapsed the world economy. And so between the two, the, the first one happens in 2001, the second happens in 2008. That's a seven-year cycle between the shakings. Secondly, when did the collapse of the economy happen, collapse of Wall Street? It happened in the month of September. That's seven years to the month of 9-11. When? It happened the second week of September. That's when the collapse happened. That's seven, week, seven years to the week of 9-11. But even more than that, the, the peak of the collapse happened at the end of September 2008. It was the greatest stock market collapse, a point crash in American history. And it, it, eerily, when that day opened up, the, the bell, when they rang the bell at Wall Street, it refused to ring. Even Wall Street took it as an omen. And what happened that day, the greatest crash happened. So when did the greatest collapse in American history happen, in financial history? It happened on the biblical day of the Shemitah, Elul 29, the exact day down to the literally the hours of the Shemitah, which is what, which is to strike a financial, the financial realm of a nation, to wipe away credit, wipe away debt, wipe away financial accounts. And if you go back seven years from this greatest crash, as according to the mystery, you find an, another really mind-boggling thing, and that is the, you find in the month of September 2001, that's seven years back, you find another crash that was the greatest crash in American history up to that date. It was actually caused by 9-11, the stock market crashes. And when did that take place? It happened on September 17, 2001. Well, that's, that's seven years, basically within two weeks. But when you strip away the Western calendar, go back to the biblical calendar, the other greatest crash in American, or point crash in American and world history, happens on the exact same biblical day. Elul 29, the day of the Shemitah. And so the two greatest collapse in American history and in world history happen exactly seven biblical years apart, down to the day, down to the hour. And, you know, no, no hand, no human hand could have orchestrated that, because, I mean, every transaction on earth is part of that transaction. Not only that, but, you know, it's not just Elul 29 once a year. Only one Elul 29 every, once every seven years can be it. So 
When did these happen? The two greatest collapses in American history happened on the exact once in seven years Shemitah down to the hour. And the message is, I mean, there's so much here, I mean, that, that this triggers the Great Recession has affected everyone's future. In fact, there's another one coming up. I mean, I'm not dogmatic about what God has to do or how, but there's another one coming up. But the, the fact is, this has affected everyone, caused the Great Recession. But the message is a prophetic message that I get into in the book on this, and that basically is saying that if the, America doesn't turn back to God, the Shemitah the word in Hebrew not only means, you know, uh, 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 basically, a re- basically a release, it also means a collapse or a fall. The, the message is that if America doesn't turn back to God, the American age as we know it will collapse. Well, the next Shemitah then would be Elul 29-2015. Yeah, well, the next Shemitah, yeah, the next Shemitah year begins uh, on 2014, September, and it ends in September 2015, as you said, which is September 13th. Now, I, I want to be careful because I, you know, I don't want to be dogmatic when we say, you know, when God's in a box, he has to do this. He doesn't have to do that. But what I would simply say is keep your eyes open, though. I mean, it doesn't have to happen that, the third time, but it, hap- it could, and it happened exactly down to the hours the last two times. I mean, it, it's really mind-boggling, and it's amazing that economists and others didn't, didn't note this. The fact is that, you know, since the Harbinger came out, the Harbingers have not stopped. It's continued to happen. I mean, you know, things that I didn't even know about when I wrote the book, it's going down again to dates that it gave and down to more manifestations. Yeah, some, the, some the, since even yeah. the book has been published, and we'll talk yeah. about those when we come back. Uh, Jonathan Kahn is with us, The Harbinger, the ancient mystery that holds the secret of America's future, and we'll uh, delve into some of the uh, the harbingers that just keep on coming. And uh, we'll also talk about uh, sort of the, the supernatural aspect of how this came, this book came into being. I'm back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Don't you dare go away. Welcome back. Jonathan Kahn is uh, connecting the dots uh, between what happened in ancient Israel and what is now unfolding in America. The Harbinger, the ancient mystery that holds the secret of America's future. And uh, I, I guess, you know, as we, we move into 2014 and uh, into the next Shemitah in uh, September, uh, which begins September 2014 and ends September 2015, uh, are, you, are you hopeful? Uh, are you optimistic about the future or are you filled with dread? Well, uh, <laughs> ne- well, sort of neither, and, and but a little bit both in one. Uh, I, in looking the way America is going, um, it is rapidly, I mean, rapidly morally descending. And and if that continues, what the Harbinger says, and, it, and basically, you know, in the book, I, it outlines the progression of judgment. Um, you know, there's exact patterns of what happens and and what how it how it unfolds. Um, and the and the overall is that if America doesn't turn back, what's going to happen is there will be continued continual shakings, as we have seen shakings until the nation either comes to a, a return, a revival, or it heads judgment. Now, I believe when people ask me, could it be judgment or revival? I believe I answer it could be both. And sometimes revival only comes through shaking. So in that sense, I can say there's there's hope, and and the, you know ultimately there is hope. I mean, I, if there was no if there was no hope, I don't believe there would be any harbingers. What's the point of warning if there's no hope? But if I looked simply on what, if on television and news and what's happening, I would say it looks very unhopeful. Um, but I believe we are going to be heading for some very great shakings ahead. And and that's what. And the other thing is that I mean I don't take credit for the harbinger. It, it really just was revealed. It happened. It, the book really wrote itself. Literally, I never wrote a book before. 
and it you know and it it and it continues to happen like a life of its own it's well, continuing let's talk about some of the the harbingers that have uh, sure. rev- or manifested since yeah. you actually published the book yeah sure well one one of the things is the, the and one of the harbingers we didn't mention which is the fourth harbinger of the book and it's the tower and that is that basically after you know israel you know is attacked and they say we're going to rebuild Undoubtedly, they built towers, and one of the ancient translations of the Bible, um, called the Septuagint, which is the first translation of the Bible ever made, it's before the New Testament, the New Testament quotes from it. Um, basically, the rabbis, the ancient rabbis, when they got to Isaiah 9.10, the bricks have fallen, we will rebuild with hewn stone, they did a, an interesting thing. Instead of saying the bricks are fallen, we'll rebuild with hewn stone, they say the bricks are fallen, come let us build for ourselves a tower. So the ancient translation literally speaks of a tower rising from the ruins of the destruction. Well, if you go to Ground Zero now, you'll see a tower after 9-11. A tower began to rise, which they called the Freedom Tower, then they called the One World Tower. Um, and so it's rising. So this is the fourth harbinger. It's the most colossal harbinger, this, this tower. And the ancient rabbis, they were connecting basically Isaiah 9-10 with a scripture from Genesis, which is where they got it from, which is the Tower of Babel. So here they're, they're speaking this Tower of Defiance rising up, which is not a good sign. And it's right there at ground zero. It's not finished yet. And the thing is that I didn't know when I wrote the, the book, and, I, and when I spoke of this symbol, I, I linked it to the Tower of Babel. But what happened is there was a, there was a scripture that was hidden in ground zero, and, and I had no idea of it. And I, I was discovered by one of the chief photographers of ground zero. He took, he, and I spoke to him personally to make sure, and he, he was there. He photographed it. He photographed it. was a Bible that had been blown apart, and there was one page visible, charred, and he takes the picture. He's whisked out of there because it was dangerous, and, and he looks at his camera, and when he sees the picture, the scripture, he starts weeping. What was the scripture? The scripture was, come let us build for ourselves a tower. Oh, my word. That is the scripture hidden in ground zero which is not only the Tower of Babel, it's Isaiah 9.10, the Harbinger Scripture, which in the, in the form of the Septuagint, right there in the ruins. Now, here's, here's what happens to that tower. The tower is rising up, and everybody was waiting for the day that that tower would break the barrier in New York City and become the tallest building again after the, the Empire State Building was the tallest building. Well, it happens. On a certain day, finally, they break the barrier. It becomes a new story all over the world. They focus on Ground Zero. Well, in the Harbinger, there's a date that's given that, that, is, that is linked in the Harbinger to Ground Zero. The date that's given is the date that that tower breaks the barrier and becomes the tallest building again. And, and what happens is, and this is after the Harbinger came out, but about seven months after the Harbinger came out, Something happens. The president of the United States, Obama, goes down to ground zero, and they show him the tower. And they, they show him a beam. And this beam is significant because it's going to be the highest, it's going to be the final beam of the tower. It's going to finish the harbinger, basically. And it's going to finish all the harbingers. And it's going to be the highest beam in America. And so what happens is they show it to him. And he inscribes, he makes an inscription on the tower. He, you know, he can write anything, any words. But what he writes on the words is basically, in American prose, he writes the vow of Isaiah, the vow of ancient Israel that brought destruction to the nation. He writes it in American form. He, he writes it in basically in modern form. He, we, we rebuild, we come back stronger. He writes it basically, here's the thing, he, in ancient Israel, when they, Isaiah 9-10 was spoken by the leaders and it brought judgment, in Hebrew, it's only eight Hebrew words. 
Well, the president, Obama, he inscribes eight English words that match the eight Hebrew words of Isaiah. It, I mean, I mean, I mean, phrase by phrase. In fact, if you go, if you go to the center of the ancient Hebrew vowel that brought destruction, you find the fourth word, the fourth of the eight words, the central word is the word nivna in Hebrew, which is rebuild. If you go to the, the fourth word of the, of the president's eight words on the tower, it's the word rebuild, matches word for word. The highest words in America are the words of defiance, which match the ancient vow of ancient Israel that brought destruction. I mean, it's eerie. My and word. here's another thing, Richard. You know, there is a, there is a, um, a Bible. I mean, it's called the One-Year Bible, and it's all around the world, and millions of people have read it. And basically, here's the thing. With, with, a, with a harbinger, the mystery is that the, that Isaiah 9:10, which is linked to the first strike on a land, it's linked to the, the first warning strike of judgment. It's, it's linked to all the harbingers. It's, it's linked to the date 9/11 or September 11th. Well, that's in the harbinger, but I had no idea that before I even wrote the harbinger, basically God was revealing this around the country, around the world, to millions of Americans. If you go, you open up the one-year Bible. And you open up to find the Harbinger Scripture, Isaiah 9:10. If you, you find that page, and above the Scripture will appear a date in every one of your Bible. The date that appears in the Bible is September 11th. My, Over, my. Not, in other words, that before I even wrote the Harbinger, Isaiah 9:10, September 11th was marked to be the date of the warning of the nation under judgment. And not only more, even more like incredible, this Bible version, this came out before 9-11, not only before the Harbinger, but before 9-11. So all across America, every year, millions of Americans are opening the Bible every year on September 11th to Isaiah 9-10, and it's marked before it happened that on 9-11 will be the first strike, the first warning of the nation. And, and on 9-11 itself, when all these things were happening, Amer- all over America and over the world, people are reciting the, the, the Scripture. They're talking about the sycamore before the sycamore struck down. They're talking about the bricks falling before the buildings fell. They're talking about all of it. I mean, so this is, I mean, I mean nobody, and I, I had no idea. When my wife told me, you know, well, actually, when I, when I found out about this, I, I didn't even believe it, and it's true. So that's, those are just some of the things. I'll, I'll give you one more quick, yes. quick one, yes. and that is, that, you know, one of the harbingers is that tree, is that the Eres tree. It's the seventh harbinger in the book. And this is the tree, of, called, they called it the tree of hope. It was going to represent that, hey, we're coming back stronger and all that. Well, one of the symbols of judgment in the Bible, and you'll see it again and again, is the destruction of a tree, and not just the striking down of a tree, but literally the withering of a tree. And that is, that is you know, even Jesus, you know, the, the famous withering of the fig tree. Sure, well, it's sure. a sign of national judgment. Well, if you go to Ground Zero today, and you look for the seventh harbinger of the book, you find the tree of hope that was supposed to represent, you know, America and coming back. The tree of hope is withering away. All, and the, 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 the keepers of Ground Zero, can, they, there's, they have no explanation. They can't save it. It's withering away. One of the signs of the Bible of national judgment is that the branches, and you'll find in the Bible, that God says, I will break the branches off. You know, and that's a sign, sign of that the nation's glory is going to be broken off. Well, the tree of hope, the branches are bro- literally broken off. It's literally being held up by a rope. And, and all around the tree, you know, everything else is green. 
but the tree of hope is literally the only thing that's just withering away, which is a sign of things to come if America does not turn back, and it's going to affect the world, the shaking of that is yet to come. My word. And, you know, all the financial prog- uh, prognosticators that I, that I follow on King World News and so forth, I mean, they're talking about uh, a major, major correction that's, that's coming our way in the stock market and, and, you know, vast wealth that's going to be destroyed. Uh, all these things seem to be, you know, lining up. Now, we just got a, a few minutes, but I, I, I want to get to, if we have time here, the, the supernatural aspect of this. You yeah. found out about the Harbinger at, at the Super Bowl, didn't you? Well, not not exactly, but but it begins with the Super Bowl. And strangely, for people who are into this who are football, they know the greatest play in Super Bowl history is is what it was. It was a catch made by David Tyree of the New York Giants, the 2008. He catches the ball on his helmet. What people don't know is that that David Tyree is a born again believer. And when and not only that, when he went into that game game, a prophecy had been given to him that something was going to happen that was going to be linked, that was going to take him out of obscurity and it was going to put him in the spotlight so he could share the gospel. Well he went into that game basically waiting for a catch, wondering about that prophecy. But well he, he it happened, he wrote a book and he mentioned the guy who gave him the prophetic word. Okay, now cut to to 2010, I just finished the Harbinger, and it, and I didn't know now. Now what do I do with it? I, I've never written a book before. Most people said, you know, a book, you know, you know, most book companies aren't going to care about someone who hasn't written a book before. I'm on a plane, I'm heading down to Dallas, Texas. I'm going to speak at Promise Keepers, but the plane stops at Charlotte Airport. I just finished the book, so I'm in the airport at Charlotte Airport. I bow my head and I say, Lord, the Harbinger is your word, not mine. It came, it came, didn't come from me. It came through me, and this is yours. So you have to do it, not by man, not by the plans of, of people, but you have to do it by your hand. You have to get this word to the nation, and you've done things like that before into the world. I open my eyes, there's a man sitting to my left. He turns to me in the airport, he turns to me and he says, so what's the good word? I said, well, I, I said, God loves you. He said, I know that, but what's the good word? He begins to speak to me, and then all of a sudden he begins to prophesy over me at Charlotte Airport. He said, there is a book, you have, you, you have a book, it is from God, this word is from God, it's going to go forth to the nation, it's going to go forth to the world, God's going to do it by his hand, it's going to change your life, it's going to change all these things, and God's going to do it. The man who's sitting next to me is the same man who gave the prophetic word to David Tyree of the Super Bowl. Oh my. And he, he wasn't supposed to be on that plane, he was supposed to be on another plane, but, but the Rain kept canceling his plane until he was put on my plane. And so he says the word, and because David Tyree mentioned him in his book, and it was published by Charisma, Stephen Strang, the president, it put this guy at the airport in touch with the president of this book publishing company. So I didn't do a thing. Or he gives me the word, and he sends word to them. They, and I get it a little while later, I get a contact from Stephen Strang, the publisher of Charisma, uh, publishers. He says, we heard what happened at the airport. We, have, we heard about the thing called the Harvard. We have no idea what it is, but we're interested. And because of that totally supernatural thing, I bowed my head, prayed that prayer. That is how the Harbinger became a New York Times bestseller. That's how it went forth, totally by the hand of God. You know, totally as he did in ancient times. Jonathan. So it went forth. The first week it went out, it became a New York Times bestseller. We're talking now, Richard, two years later. It has been on that list for a hundred week, over a hundred weeks now. It's totally by the hand of God. I don't take any claim for the Harbinger. It really just wrote itself. Unbelievable. Very quickly, where can we get the Harbinger? 
The Harbinger is everywhere. Basically, people can go online tonight on Amazon and every other place. Every Christian bookstore and secular bookstore, Walmart has it. It's everywhere from uh, from Amazon tonight. And um, also, the Isaiah 910 Judgment is everywhere. The Harbinger Decoded is another DVD. So that's they go online, they can find it Excellent. pretty much right away. All right. Thank you so much for this, Jonathan. Absolutely mind blowing. Thank you, Richard. It's been a, been a joy. Jonathan Kahn. All right. RichardSerrett.com is the website. Say hello on Twitter. And as always, follow the truth. Thank you for your ears, friends. Hope you're warm, comfortable, well-fed. My name is Richard Serrett. Welcome to the broadcast. Tim, Tim Spreen, my producer. I invited you to my 50th birthday. I sent you an email. Why weren't you there? Not, I'm putting you on the spot. I know. What happened? What happened, Tim? I get said email. You didn't? I can show you. I'll show you the email. You didn't get it. It must have gone right to your spam folder. I do have a pretty intense spam folder. How disappointing. My own producer, not at my 50th birthday party. I'm terribly sorry. All right. Well, you can take me out for a drink later. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Uh, Wow. Um, Both of my boys made me uh, these beautiful cards, birthday cards. And uh, Little North, who he can, uh, he looks at you in those beautiful blue eyes, and then he can cut you to the quick. Just like that. And he, Zach made me a beautiful, lovely, heartfelt card. Uh, such an innocent child. And then North hands me this card. He goes, open mine first, he said. Uh, so I did. And it included this handwritten note. And it said, Dad, happy birthday, you big old lump. <laughs> Which he calls me, big old lump. Uh, he says, you're almost a half century. Uh, do you need a cane? <laughs> and then he says, and you don't even dye your hair. That's amazing. Love, North. And so I said to him, how old do I look? And without missing a beat, he said, you look 50, Dad. <laughs> and uh, Joan Rivers said, looking 50 is great. If you're 60. <laughs> anyway, we've got a great show for you tonight. And a little later in the program, uh, an update to an earlier interview with the author of The Rabbi Who Found Messiah, uh, Carl Gallops, was with us just a few weeks ago to talk about the end times prophecies uh, of Rabbi Yitzhak Kaduri. And if you tuned into that, uh, if you tuned in that night, you'll know that back in 2005, Rabbi Kaduri, then 108 years old, uh, the most venerated rabbinical Jewish leader in Israel, proclaimed he had personally seen the Messiah in a vision and that the name of the Messiah was to be mysteriously and crypti- cryptically sealed in a message and instructions were given to lock the message away until one year after the rabbi's death. When Kaduri died, several hundred thousand people flooded the streets of Jerusalem for his funeral. It was one of the largest in Israel's history. And the death message was secreted away for one year as the rabbi had instructed. And then the message was opened and deciphered, and, and it caused quite a storm. It was met with incredible skepticism and denial, and understandably so. Again, here we have the most venerated rabbinical Jewish leader in Israel revealing in his death note that the Messiah is Yeshua, Jesus. Well, there is an important a prophecy we, we hinted at the last time Carl was with us. We didn't get to it, but we will tonight, and it ties into the recent passing of former Israel Prime Minister, Israeli Prime Minister Ariel Sharon, who, of course, just died after languishing in a coma for eight years. That's coming up a little bit later. But first, 
There was another story that caught my attention over the the Christmas holidays, and I filed it and then got caught up in the ice storm and and forgot about it. Uh, Then, our resident paranormal researcher here on The Conspiracy Show, Rosemary Ellen Guiley, got in touch with me and said she was itching to talk about the elves of Iceland. If you don't know the story, these elf, elf advocates in Iceland have joined forces with environmentalists to urge the Icelandic Road and Coastal Commission and local authorities to abandon a highway project uh, building a direct route from the uh, the Elftanis Peninsula, where the president has a home, to the Reykjavik suburb of Gardaber. And these elf advocates fear disturbing elf habitat and claim the area is particularly important because it contains an elf church. The project's been halted until the Supreme Court of Iceland rules on a case brought up by a group known as Friends of Lava, who cite both the environmental and the cultural impact, including the impact on elves of the road project. The group has regularly brought hundreds of people people out to block the bulldozers. And it's not the first time issues about Holdu folk Icelandic for hidden folk have affected planning decisions. They occur so often that the Road and Coastal Administration has come up with a stock media response for elf inquiries, which states that, quote, issues have been settled by delaying the construction project at a certain point while the elves living there have supposedly moved on, end quote. Scandinavian folklore is full of elves, trolls, and other mythological characters, Most people in Norway, Denmark, and Sweden haven't taken them seriously since the 19th century, but elves are no joke to many in Iceland. Population, 320,000. A survey conducted by the University of Iceland in 2007, get this, found that 62% of the 1,000 respondents thought it was at least possible that elves exist. Ragenhilder John's daughter, a self-proclaimed seer, believes she can communicate with the creature uh, creatures through telepathy. It will be a terrible loss and de- damaging both for the elf world and for us humans, said John Studer of the Road Project. Well, John Studer of Iceland is not the only seer who believes in Holdu folk or hidden folk. As I mentioned, Rosemary Ellen Guiley does also, and she's developed, delved deeply into the world of elves, trolls, fairies, and more of our interdimensional neighbors over her long and varied career. Rosemary is the author of Over 45 books and hundreds of articles on a wide range of topics, she conducts original field investigations of hauntings and mysterious sites, researches entity contact, experiences and spirit communications, and she's a consulting editor of Fate magazine, and she joins us once a month here in The Conspiracy Show, Rosemary Ellen Guiley. How are you? I'm doing well, Richard, and I wanted to give you my own birthday greetings. Ah, thank you very much. Well, one day I'll return the favor when you turn 50. <laughs> well, I'll never make it to 50. <laughs> well, I'll give you a dozen years. I think you'll, you'll, you'll get there. But if you reach 108, maybe you'll still look like 50. <laughs> yes, then there'll be a, be that's right, there'll be a, what was a, a Oscar Wilde, the picture of Dorian Gray. There'll be a picture of me in the attic getting older. That's right. So what do you make of this, uh, this elf story? When I first read it, the fir- when I first looked at the headline, I thought, oh, well, isn't this kind of quaint and cute? Uh, you know, they're sort of paying homage to ancient Icelandic folklore, but it's not really they're not taking it seriously. But it appears that they actually are. 
They are taking it seriously, and it's not the first time that stories have made the international news. Uh, and we're probably only hearing about the tip of the iceberg. There was um, uh, another major story back in 2011 about a, uh, another road construction project in Iceland uh, near a village where they were putting up an anti-avalanche barrier, and uh, they started blasting a tunnel through a hill. And the construction workers started getting pelted by stones, rains of stones that started coming down on them from nowhere apparent. And, uh, of course, the locals said, oh, this is the elves. The elves are getting angry at, at all of this construction work. It's disturbing their landscape because um, one of the beliefs about elves is that they live in the rocks, in hilly areas, and mountainous areas. And uh, so uh, work was halted on the project. Uh, for a while, and the townspeople got together, and they held ceremonies, ceremonies, and um, petitioned the elves, uh, saying they were sorry. Um, they they wanted to work out a compromise. They sang songs to them, uh, and of course, a lot of people think this is backward superstition, but it's not. It's these are people who are still very aware of the other residents of the earth the invisible uh, residents who share the landscape with us. And it wasn't that long ago that our, our very own Celtic ancestors and even American ancestors felt the same way. So they've uh, managed in Iceland to, to retain a, an awareness and uh, a sense of this interdimensional earth that many other people have lost. Well, I think of elves. Of course, we think of uh, we think of Santa Claus and and um, you know the the denizens of the North Pole and uh, elves make toys and so forth. And then if we we think about J.R.R. Tolkien and and uh, the elves that in, inhabited, uh, um, I guess you know the Middle Earth in um, the Hobbit and Lord of the Rings and so forth. So I mean, which which sort of depiction of of elves is is more accurate do you think are they uh, these fierce warriors that are pretty handy with a bow and arrow or are they uh uh you know these tiny little creatures that uh, uh make toys actually tolkien's version of the elves is probably closer to what our uh, ancestors perceived and believed in they've um fairies and fell uh, fairies and elves have kind of uh, gotten cutesified over the years, uh, turned into uh, cute little things, when actually our ancestors knew them as quite formidable beings who were um, not to be trifled with, not to be crossed, and also who uh, many of whom, whom did not have a very good opinion of human beings. And that's kind of the attitude we see in the Tolkien elves, is that um, they keep to themselves, uh, they have kind of a disdain for uh, other other life forms that, that they think are not as enlightened as themselves. Well, in, in fairy lore, which includes the elves, and many times we just have different labels for the, the same thing, these hidden folk who live uh, in the landscape and in the subterranean earth, um, they're, they're everywhere. And the people have been interacting with them since, uh, you know, early times. They're still around, I do believe it, and um, if you take the time and effort to tune into them, you will find them. And what do they look like? They take all kinds of appearances. 
They can range from looking like diminutive human beings, like the Snow White and Seven Dwarf kind of variety. Uh, they can be balls of light, little pinpoints of light. Uh, I've had many cases, modern cases, where people have uh, reported them having wings. That would be more in the fairies than the elves. Um, they don't really need wings, and that was, was um, very popularized by the Victorians in art, uh, the little beings with the wings. Uh, they can be big. They can be bigger than human beings. And, in fact, um, accounts from Scotland uh, talk about fairy uh, folk who are much taller and more graceful than human beings. Um, the way Tolkien uh, portrays the elves in uh, the Lord of the Rings uh, stories, um, they have so many appearances that um, William Butler, Butler Yeats once said that Fairies appear however they want to appear and how we're capable of perceiving them. Um, so uh, they're shapeshifters. Uh, they have kind of a mischievous nature many times, so they take different guises. And then I also think that um, when, when we're seeing the unseen, our brain has to make sense of patterns of energy that are unfamiliar to us. And uh, so this may account for some of the variation in their appearances as well. All right. And when we talk about these uh, huldu folk or hidden folk, there seems to be this common denominator that uh, they're trying to prevent uh, us humans from damaging or destroying their favorite things. And uh, their favorite things seem to be uh, ancient uh, uh, stands of trees. And we'll talk about that when we come back. Rosemary Ellen Guiley as we talk about elves and other hidden folk here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Welcome back. What does the recent death of Ariel Sharon have to do with the end times? Well, stay tuned. We will find out later in the hour when I'm joined by Carl Gallops, author of The Rabbi Who Found Messiah. That was one of the prophecies of the 108-year-old Rabbi Yitzhak Kaduri. Uh, We talked to Carl a few weeks ago, and we didn't have time to address the Ariel Sharon prophecy. And now, of course... Uh, with the the death of Sharon, it's in the news, and we will address that right now. Oh, let me uh, also point out, coming up next week on the program, the ancient giants who ruled America, the missing skeletons, and the great Smithsonian cover-up. Uh, right now, our dear friend Rosemary Ellen Guiley joins us as we talk about uh, elves, trolls, uh, fairies, goblins, and other hidden folk. And uh, this story in Iceland, um, the uh, elf advocates are concerned about this massive road construction project that's uh, going through the heart of uh, uh, the the island of ice and fire. And uh, that seems to be sort of the common denominator with these interdimensional entities is that uh, they don't seem pleased with what we're doing with the environment, and especially when we, we tend to uh, cut down old stands of trees, especially elder and oak and blackthorn. This is a common theme in fairy lore. And, uh, for example, there are quite a few documented stories from uh, the uh, early 20th century and the 19th century in England, Scotland, Ireland, um, northern France, uh, about fairies who get very upset when uh, people come and build on their land or take down their favorite trees. And uh, we see this with other uh, entities as well. For example, I've documented some gin cases where uh, land seems to be occupied by 
uh, jinn who have a strong relationship to fairies, and in fact, uh, in some cases, it may be hard to separate the two. Uh, and they also react to people cutting down their favorite trees. Uh, fairy lore is very strong uh, concerning magical trees. Um, certain trees believe the wood, you know, believed to have magical properties. Fairies live there, and people who violate fairy territory pay a heavy price for that. And there are stories of people who've had their homes destroyed, who've even lost their lives, uh, their fortune, their health, because they, uh, they crossed the fairies. And sometimes it's inadvertent, uh, and sometimes it's deliberate. Uh, but the, the bottom line is um, fairies have a very strong sense of territory, a sense of home, and things that are sacred to them. And when human beings come along and uh, violate those, uh, they react with a great deal of anger and revenge. So are you using the terms fairies and elves sort of interchangeably? Yes, because um, they're all part of these classes of hidden people, and they share similar creation stories about um, being on the planet first, uh, losing territory and ground to human beings and retreating into more remote places, uh, even under the earth. Uh, they have supernatural powers, shape-shifting ability. Uh, similar stories are told about these hidden people all over the planet. And um, uh, trolls would be part of that class as well. Uh, we find in different parts of the world uh, distinct regional characteristics, like, for example, the Scandinavian trolls are um, beings who especially live um, under bridges and like to rush out and attack people, and, and they're rather um, ferocious and ugly and nasty, whereas um, fairies span um, more of a range of beautiful to ugly and live in different kinds of habitats. But they all share the same common ground, so I think we, we just apply different names to the same kinds of beings that humans have had interactions with for centuries. Yeah, you, not surprisingly, Ireland uh, uh, is um, a land steeped in, in uh, fairy and uh, elf lore. And uh, in one of your books, you, you uh, recount the story of uh, a couple of Irish gentlemen who tried to, to drain, uh, I believe it was Hart Lake, near Sligo, Ireland, and, and, and uh, some of the misfortune that befell them. Can you uh, recount that story? Well, when they tried to uh, drain the, the lake, they began having visions that their houses were burning down, and um, they, uh, they went rushing home only to find that their homes were okay. It was just tricks played by the fairies, but it was kind of a warning. Uh, well, some other people weren't quite so lucky. There's another story out of Ireland um, about a, a man who cut a branch of a sacred elder tree that was hanging over Saint's Well, and fairies um, are often said to guard um, sacred springs and wells. And the fairies were so upset that uh, they also did the same sort of thing, uh, sending him sort of visions about his uh, house burning down. Um, and Twice he went running home, uh, uh, only to find that his home was fine. Um, and he continued with uh, cutting the branch. And when he finally got the branch cut, then um, he went home and discovered that his home had, in fact, burned down. So the fairies had tried to give him a couple warnings, 
uh, he didn't pay attention, he, he uh, violated their sacred tree, and so they retaliated by burning his house down. Uh, again, I go back to the works of J.R.R. Tolkien, and I'm wondering, do you think he actually, did he believe in these interdimensional creatures, or was he using them as a metaphor, or uh, because, uh, I mean, he's, he's, he's just so, um, he just seems to be so, I don't know, enthralled by them, or... or uh, preoccupied with, with, these, with these entities? Tolkien said uh, that he was just trying to entertain his kids when he wrote, you know, started writing these stories. But the, uh, the detail of his stories and his creative vision uh, in building these, these worlds uh, reveals a, a vast knowledge of, um, of these beings and these mythologies. So um, I, I think he was fascinated by this and had made quite a study of it, um, and combined that with uh, you know a, a very good imagination. You know, just just a few days ago, my my husband Joe and I went out to dinner, and um, we had a nice young man from Ireland as our waiter, and um, so we started chatting with him, and um, he'd only been in this country a year. And I said, uh, well, do you believe in fairies? He said, oh, yes. And he said, my uncle once tried to cut down um, a tree and uh, was stopped by the neighbors because they warned him that it was a tree sacred to the fairies and he would uh, be uh, punished if he did so. And he paid attention to them and did not cut the tree down. So these sorts of beliefs are still very much alive and well in uh, parts of the world. And what about closer to home on this side of the pond and, and more modern uh, encounters with these hidden folk? What can you tell us about more modern encounters? Uh, here in, in America, in, in, in the modern Western world, I find uh, people expect fairies to be like Tinkerbell, uh, small, cute little things with wings that tend to nature. And... <clears throat> Uh, when they report encounters with them, it's often with these kinds of beings that they see out in nature. And then um, we also have um, people who've been familiar with the Findhorn story from um, from Scotland, the, the people who uh, colonized a very barren area and started communicating with presences of the land that they called divas, uh, who enabled them to have spectacular farming results there and the uh, Findhorn community is uh, still very thriving today. But they describe these uh, spirits of the land, which would be fairies or related to fairies, as very tall, uh, shining pillars of light. And uh, that's why they referred to them as divas. So we find those sorts of, of cases as well. Um, I find that many people want to have a contact with fairies, and I've done a couple of books on fairies. I've, I've seen and communicated with fairies myself. I've never had any bad experiences with them, fortunately. Um, and I think it can be done through uh, meditative uh, practices, through developing your third eye, and also having the intention of um, respect and, and good intention. Um, Goodwill. Well, who does? That, uh, why do certain people get to see them and, and others do not? For example, I, I a member of um, my family uh, that you know back in the old country, 
um, has some amazing stories to tell as a young child, encountering what whether they were whether they were fairies or uh, wood nymphs or whatever. And then uh, when this person came to this country, um, saw what sounds like, based on her uh, on the on the description, to be an elf of some sort in the house. So, why do certain people get to see them and others do not? It, some of it may be a cultural conditioning. If you grow up in a culture that accepts the presence of these beings and your family members talk about seeing them, uh, you learn from a very early age how to perceive their presence. And uh, in more developed and urban areas and where the folklore has been uh, lost over decades, uh, that sort of awareness um, becomes lost as well, and it can be reclaimed. Uh, people can um, can do so by making a deliberate effort to, to tune into that. And you do find these beings in homes as well, uh, and I think a lot of us have uh, resident spirits who are mostly benign, sometimes a little on the tricky side, that uh, come and go in our houses all the time, and sometimes they do take up residence in them. Uh, many people have, in general, uh, gotten out of touch with the ability to see the unseen. And uh, this was much more a part of daily life in, in earlier times where people lived closer to the land. Um, they had different uh, lifestyles. Uh, they weren't so distracted with uh, the noise and racket that uh, we surround ourselves with now. And that can be a detriment as well to tuning into to these uh, beings. But it can be done with, with a bit of effort. And um, in your own backyard, uh, in the park down the street, um, if you take a bit of time and cultivate wanting to um, go through that, that interdimensional veil and, uh, and see these beings who are uh, part of the unseen earth, um, most people will have success at it. When uh, when I was uh, married um, uh, and you know set up a set up a household with the mighty Aphrodite, uh, I was presented with a pair of red pillows, and uh, told I was told to you know to place these on the uh, on the sofa and that these would keep the elves away. Have you heard anything like that before? I have indeed, Richard. And uh, red is a color that uh, in folklore repels any unwanted spirit. And uh, so uh, red ribbon, in fact, people in earlier times, they would tie red ribbons, uh, red yarn on their children's clothing so that they wouldn't be bothered by pesky spirits. They would put uh, red ornaments on their uh, horses um, so that the horses wouldn't be spooked by them. And uh, if people started having um, an unwanted spirit active in the house, then uh, red would be a remedy for that. And in other parts of the world, they use blue. In the Middle East, we find blue is the color that repels these uh, spirits. Also, iron, and uh, that's another very important piece of fairy elf folklore, is that uh, if you don't want to be bothered by them at night or in the house, uh, you have to have iron around. And so it was a custom to put uh, iron tools, iron scissors, iron nails, uh, things like that, like under the bed, um, nailed to the uh, the top of the threshold of a doorway, 
and uh, this would also keep the spirits away. Now, in uh, Reverend uh, Kirk's account from the 1600s in Scotland, where he claimed to have um, gone and, and visited the fairy world, um, he reports that the fairies told him that they are indeed weakened by iron and that that is a very effective weapon against them. Well, the red pillows must be working because I have not seen uh, anything unusual uh, or supernatural. Now, are these uh, these are these entities existing in our realm but simply at a different vibrational rate, or are they in another dimension? My belief is that uh, they are in another dimension. They have their own world like we do, but they are living on the earth like us. Uh, they're just living at, at, this would be another vibrational level, this dimension, that is invisible to us most of the time and becomes visible only under certain circumstances, but they, they do share the earth with us. Now, uh, some of the cases that I've collected in my, my jinn research, uh, who are another kind of supernatural entity who share the planet with us, uh, many of these cases are quite troubling to people, and that's... Uh, I, I think I'm seeing kind of a, a skewed end of the spectrum because uh, people come and report their difficulties to me. You know, people are happy with their spirits um, and not likely to hear about it as often as when people have trouble. And um, these cases deal also with um, some sort of presence that seems to be attached to the land that also reacts to uh, people occupying the same piece of land and uh, some of these entities get very upset i've had some cases where uh, people have done things like cut down trees or started to cut down trees do clearings and things like that and all of a sudden they're just in a hail of poltergeist activity uh, mysterious accidents illnesses that can't be explained um, nightmares things going on uh, that can be associated, the onset of it can be associated to uh, to the tree activity. Well, there beware the next time you go out and, uh, you know, decide to uh, prune back that uh, that white ash or maple tree. That's might be in, first. You might be inviting yourself, uh, by inviting some, uh, some trouble. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, always a pleasure. Thank you, Richard. The website, visionaryliving.com. Go on to her uh, bookstore. There's like almost 50 books there uh, to peruse and order, and uh, you will not be disappointed with any of them. Uh, Until next month, adieu, my dear. Thank you, and you too. Good night. Good night. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, back with the rabbi who found Messiah and the death of Ariel Sharon. What does it mean for the end times? Stick around and find out. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Welcome back. Did Adolf Hitler survive the uh, Berlin bunker and escape to South America aboard a German U-boat? Uh, we'll find out in a couple of weeks' time when we are joined by author Jerome Corsi, and uh, he'll talk about his explosive new book, which contains some pretty compelling evidence that Hitler, in fact, uh, did survive uh, and lived out his life in a, uh, a rather opulent conclave uh, somewhere in South America. Uh, now, uh, Israelis are paying their uh, final respects to former Prime Minister Ariel Sharon, who passed away after an eight-year fight for his life. He languished in a coma 
uh, for eight years. Uh, meanwhile, many Palestinians are celebrating the death of the 85-year-old uh, prime minister. But it may shock and surprise you to know that the death of Ariel Sharon is tied to the beginning of the end times, according to the prophecies of an 108-year-old rabbi by the name of Yitzhak Kuduri. And several weeks ago, we had the author of this book, the rabbi who found Messiah on the program, Carl Gallops, uh, and we talked about the secret uh, death note that he, uh, that, that Rabbi Kaduri left, which was to be revealed only one year after his death. Uh, the rabbi claimed that he had a vision in which the identity of the Messiah was revealed to him and the, the, um, the name of the Messiah contained in this death note, of course, was uh, shocking, uh, was met with um, derision, skepticism, denial, understandably, again, we're talking about um, a very prominent rabbi from Israel declaring that the Messiah was, in fact, Yeshua, Jesus. However, uh, I think we hinted at um, the Ariel Sharon prophecy the last time Carl was with us, but we didn't get around to really discussing it. And now, of course, with the, the death of Ariel Sharon, it's important that uh, I, 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 I thought that we revisit this topic. And uh, with that in mind, we welcome back to the program Carl Gallops, who is, as I say, the author of The Rabbi Who Found Messiah. He's also the author of The Magic Man in the Sky, Effectively Defending the Christian Faith. He's a senior pastor since 1987, a former law uh, enforcement officer, and a longtime conservative talk radio host broadcasting to a national and international audience. He's the founder of the internet sensation P.P. Simmons News and uh, Ministry Sites and serves on the Board of Regents for the University of Mobile in Mobile, Alabama. His latest book, as I say, is The Rabbi Who Found Messiah, the story of Yitzhak Kaduri and his prophecies of the end time. Carl Gallup's Welcome back to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Oh, I'm doing wonderful, Richard, and thank you so much. What an honor to be back with you tonight. Well, uh, here we are um, with with the death of Ariel Sharon just uh, several weeks after we did this program, hinting uh, at this connection between uh, Sharon and the end times. So let's let's, – we don't have a lot of time, but let's talk about um, what Yitzhak Kaduri said uh, regarding the end times and – Ariel Sharon, did he name Sharon in, in, the, in the prophecy, or did he, did he simply call him, a, a, identify him as a prominent Israeli politician? Yeah. No, no, it's rather shocking, uh, a rather shocking uh, feature or component of uh, Kaduri's prophecies about the Messiah and the impending end times. And by the way, uh, Kaduri, uh, for several years prior to his death, uh, was speaking of his visions of Messiah. Of course, he didn't name the Messiah, as you said a few moments ago, until after he died. But but the pro- one of the prominent features was that he was calling for all Jews to return to Israel, to come to Israel, to come back to Israel, because there was this uh, urgency, there was this uh, imminency of the coming of Christ, of of of, of the Messiah, uh, according to Kaduri. So. Um, as those years went by, and Israeli Israeli media sources reported his urgent pleas for Jews to come to Israel because of the soon coming of Messiah, then near the end of his life, in, in, in the end of 2005, he said not only 
did he meet the Messiah personally and knew the name of the Messiah and would leave it in a note? That was the shocking thing, number one, he said. But shocking thing, number two, he said, was that it had been revealed to him, apparently in, in this vision uh, through, through God, that Messiah would not come to Israel. Messiah would not reveal himself until after the death of Ariel Sharon. He named Ariel Sharon as a part of this end-time prophecy. Now, as you know, Richard, what, was, uh, what, what made this so startling, first of all, the two things that he said, I know the name of the Messiah, that was pretty shocking, and, and, and number two, that, it's con- that the Messiah's coming is connected to uh, Ariel Sharon's death. Well, when Kaduri said those two things, late 2005, uh, uh, Ariel Sharon was the 11th prime minister, and as far as anybody knew at that time, was in good health. Uh, but within weeks, uh, this was this, these statements were made in September and October of 2005. But by December, late December, Ariel Sharon had his first stroke. January of 2006, he had another stroke and then went into a coma. Now, that was January the 4th, 2006. Within a few weeks, Yitzhak Kaduri himself died in, in the month of January. So by January 2006... Yitz, uh, uh, Ariel Sharon was in a coma, and Yitzhak Kaduri had died. And this is all within weeks of Kaduri m- making this prophecy about the coming of the Messiah and tying it to the death of Ariel Sharon. So, of course, when all of that happened, then people waited anxiously, first of all, for this death note to be opened. It was scheduled to be opened one year after Kaduri's death. Secondly, at, at, you know, uh, concurrent with that, they're, they're watching the fact that, that Ariel Sharon, this man that's a part of the prophecy, this face of Israel, this, 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 uh, the king of Israel, some people call him, the, the, the lion of God, um, he's lying in a coma. And, you know, most, peop- most people, Richard, as you know, don't live eight years in a coma. I don't guess anybody would have suspected back then, eight years ago that he uh, would have been in a coma that long. No, in but, fact, re- and, and recently they discovered that the, that, that um, uh, Sharon apparently had some active uh, activity in his brain, that there were some brain waves which indicated, you know, that maybe he might be revived. We'll take a time out, Carl. We'll come back and we'll continue to talk about the connection between the death of Errol Sharon and the end times. The author of The Rabbi Who Found Messiah, Carl Gallops, joins me here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Former Israeli Prime Minister Ariel Sharon, who was at the height of his power when he suffered a stroke in 2006 and fell into an irreversible coma, died Saturday at the age of 85. He died at the Tel HaShomer Hospital just outside Tel Aviv with his family at his bedside. Sharon's son, Gilad Sharon, announced his death Saturday afternoon outside the hospital where he was being treated. He has gone. He went when he decided to go. He said Ariel Sharon was a renowned warrior the champion of uh, Jewish settlements and had a strong uh, advocate of uh, freedom. His career spanned the history of Israel from its establishment in 1948. Uh, But what is really interesting is that uh, Sharon's death uh, was predicted uh, sort of as a a triggering mechanism, I guess, for the second coming by Rabbi Yitzhak Kaduri. And uh, the author of The Rabbi Who Found Messiah, Carl Gallops, uh, joins us on The Conspiracy Show to tell us uh, more. So it is interesting that he, he languished in this coma for, for eight years as if, what, hanging on until the, 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 the circumstances were, were correct? So 
I mean, what does this mean that that his death uh, indicates the beginning of the end times, and now the, the the clock, the end times clock, is now in motion? Well, it's interesting. Pro- thank you, Richard, uh, for having me on, and thank you for asking that question. Prophecy buffs around the world, of course, have analyzed this thing inside and out, and and I kind of do the same thing with my book uh, because people have various, um, uh, you know, theories as to, as to what this means. Some see it as a as a time marker, as a as a as a prophetic time marker. Um, the thing the thing about it is. Uh, first of all, you mentioned right before going to break that in uh, January of 2000, it was in January of 2013 when doctors were actually saying that his uh, brain waves were exhibiting uh, uh, telltale signs of, uh, of of normal activity, and that that shocked the doctors because at that point he had been in a coma a full seven years, and 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 the, and the Januarys that line up with this are just amazing, Richard. January 2006, he goes into a coma. January 2006, Yitzhak Kaduri, the one that made the prophecy, died. January 2007, the prophetic death note is opened. January 2013, uh, he, his brainwave activity uh, picks up, and doctors are reporting, and, and world media is reporting. Fox News ran several specials on the fact that it looked like he might even come out of the coma. January 2014, the first day of January, the brand new day of the new year, headline news and international news was that Ariel Sharon was on his last days. Well, January the 11th, which happened to be seven days after, you know, he went into a coma on the 4th in 2006, so seven days after, on the Sabbath day, it was on the Sabbath in Israel, Ariel Sharon passes. So yes, people have seen all manner of, of time marker connections to his coma, to his death. Some believe that uh, if it's connected, if, if this Israeli, venerated Israeli rabbi uh, got the prophecy correct and, and, and truly heard from God, uh, that, uh, that there is a, a real time marker connection uh, to the coming of Messiah, indicating, of course, the last days. Now, that whole topic of the coming of the Messiah is extremely complex in that the Jewish mind, of course, they do, the Jews do not receive that Jesus is the Messiah. Of course, you know that, Richard. And, of course, yes. And, yes, and, and so, they, in fact, they, they kind of, they're, they're looking for two Messiahs, one called Messiah ben Joseph and the other Messiah ben David. Of course, ben means son of. Uh, Messiah ben Joseph, they're looking for kind of a military, governmental figure who will kind of be the savior of Israel. Now, I said that, and, and then, of course, Messiah ben David would be the ultimate ruling and reigning Messiah. But I said that, though, Richard, because it's interesting, and my book covers this, there are many in Israel uh, who believe that Ariel Sharon was, in fact, that Messiah ben Joseph. Now, not every Jew believes that, but there are a number who did because he was such the face of Israel, and he literally did save Israel many times in and, and various wars and, and, uh, and, and conflicts. And in fact, he was even dubbed in the Jewish media with the name not only King of Israel and the, and the Lion of God, but one of his nicknames in the media was Ariel Sharon, Savior of Israel. Uh, so yeah, this man is a, is an amazing historical figure, 
Um, he is he truly is the face of Israel. Uh, was was in Israel before it was ever a nation. Was a part of Israel government and military until the day of his death. Of course, the eleventh prime minister on the day of his death. And then, as you said, as you began this show, and as my book relates, so intimately connected to an amazing prophecy by an amazing rabbi. And again, for your audience, Richard, I want to remind your audience: this rabbi was not just some some obscure little rabbi tucked away in the bowels of Jerusalem. This Yitzhak Kaduri, when he died, was 108 years old. He, 300,000 people, Richard, came to his funeral, lined the streets of Jerusalem. They had to close the city down for a day and a half, two days. Uh, the snippets of his funeral were carried by media around the world. This guy was venerated, probably the most famous rabbi in modern Israel's history. And he is the one, he is the one, Richard, who left the death note proclaiming that the real Messiah had appeared to him, and the name of the real Messiah was Yeshua, Jesus, and that this Messiah, Yeshua, Jesus, would not present himself to Israel, would not come, would not appear, until Ariel Sharon had passed. And now that Ariel Sharon has passed, prophecy people around the world are raising some eyebrows and taking a look at the times in which we live. Okay, so if I'm remembering uh, Daniel and, and Revelations and, and so forth correctly and, and getting into the sort of the uh, eschatology or the um, uh, sort of the end times um, um, uh, prophecies, uh, before we get to the second coming, there has to be uh, what were called you know, Jacob's troubles or the, the, the tribulation. Yeah. So walk us through. Uh, let us assume for a moment that the death of Ariel Sharon is this signpost and that that essentially puts the end-time clock into motion. Walk us through, then, what happens leading up to the, the second coming. Okay, I, I will do that, Richard, and that's a very fair question, and I'm sure many in your audience want an answer to that as well. But I want to preface it by saying that there are many, well, there are several different branches of eschatological timing and scenarios, calendars, charts, graphs, maps. People have their different schools of thought, and and uh, I don't want to split and divide your audience and anger people by taking a specific uh, eschatological view and saying this is how it is. So let me just speak generally. Uh, generally speaking, the scriptures seem to indicate, according to many prophecy experts, you're exactly right, that before uh, Jesus Christ returns and sets up his kingdom on the face of the earth and restores uh you know, the kingdom rule of, of the Lord. Before that happens, there will be a time, as the Bible, as the Old Testament says, of Jacob's trouble, as, as the Bible says, a time of tribulation or great trouble, as Jesus said, like, like the world has never seen before. Um, uh, there will be that time. Some have it marked out as a seven-year period, ushered in by one whom the Bible calls the son of perdition or uh, the abomination that causes desolation. Uh, uh, John refers to him in First uh, John, Second John, the, uh, the Antichrist that is to come. Uh, so so with, with that in mind, oh, and there's, and there's a rapture in there too. And of course, there are different theories as to the timing of the rapture. Will the rapture come before the Antichrist appears? Will, he, will the rapture occur during kind of the, the midterm reign of that seven-year period? Or will the rapture occur after the seven-year period, and different prophecy people are divided into different camps. But the bottom line, Richard, in answer to your question, many people believe, in light of this uh, rabbi's prophecy, because let's face it, 
he named Jesus as the Messiah. Well, he got that right. <laughs> and he also said that Messiah would not come before Sharon died. Well, he got that right. So uh, because he was crying with such urgency for Jews to return to Israel because the end times were upon us and the Messiah was soon to return, many extrapolate that to mean that at the death of Sharon, very soon thereafter, these end times would would begin to unfold. And you're right, that would, according to the Word of God, that would mean that uh, the Antichrist system would appear on the face of the earth, and we would go through this time of Jacob's trouble or tribulation, and, uh, of course, the rapture would occur in there, depending upon where your eschatology is, and then, of course, the, the rule and reign of, of Jesus Christ. Um, the skeptics, though, uh, Carl, would say, you know, uh, but about that day or hour, no one knows. Correct. No one knows. Not even yes. the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father. Yes. So yes. how do you respond to that? How could Rabbi Kaduri know, you know, when the end time clock will start clicking? Right. Uh, you know, when Matthew twenty four thirty six says, nobody knows. Yes. Well, no, well, my answer to that is very clear, and that is, from all of my studies and, and, and writing this book and researching, I... Could find, I could find nowhere where Rabbi Kaduri set a time and a date. In other words, he did not say that the Messiah would return uh, the day after uh, Sharon dies, or the month after, or even the year after. What he said was, simply what he said was, Messiah would not come before Sharon died. But after Sharon died is when Messiah would come. But he didn't say when, so he didn't name a date and time. And of course, I, I don't either. I've, I've been in the ministry 30 years. I have never uh, declared a date and a time, and my book does not do that either. My book simply uh, journalizes and records this amazing story and all the various arms and branches of it. But you're exactly right. I think the Christians especially need to be very careful that we don't uh, try to set a particular date and time for the, for the return of the Lord. However, Richard, having said that, we can certainly take the words of Jesus as he chastised the Pharisees and said, look, you can tell the weather by looking at the signs in the skies, but you don't even know the signs of the times in which you live. And, of course, he was referring to the fact that here was the Messiah standing right in front of them, and the Pharisees knew those scriptures backwards and forwards, supposedly, had the prophecies in their possession, but yet they were so, uh, had so deluded them down by their own individualistic, nationalistic interpretations of the Messiah that the Messiah was standing right in front of them, and they missed him. And so he said, look, you guys can't even discern the times in which you live. So what I'm, what I'm saying is that we're living in prophetic times. We're living in exciting times. I mean, Israel has restored, is restored. Israel's back in the land, uh, according to Ezekiel 37. The nations of, uh, of, of the world, the Muslim nations, the nations of the East and Asia are aligning themselves in alliances prophesied in Ezekiel 38 to attack and to destroy Israel. The gospel of the kingdom is going around the world. Now we're hearing of Muslims in the Muslim world having Jesus dreams, having visions and dreams that Jesus is the Messiah. Now we've got this most venerated rabbi out of Israel, 108 years old, the most famous rabbi in the last 100 years, saying, I have had a vision. I know who the Messiah is. It is Jesus. It is Jesus. And this same Messiah saying, and after Ariel Sharon dies, sometime after he dies, Messiah will come. And I'm just saying, I'm not setting dates and times, but my goodness, 
Richard, we're living in some very prophetic, very biblical, very exciting times. Indeed. I mean, nobody nobody wants to be labeled with the, the Herald Camping. Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> but on the other hand, as you say, things are lining up. I recently spoke with Jonathan Kahn, the author of, uh, of The Harbinger. Yes. And, uh, uh, you know, some some interesting <laughs> interesting uh, yes. things manifesting in America that mirror what happened in, in, in ancient Israel. Uh, in a couple of weeks, I'm going to be talking to uh, somebody about the, uh, the arrival of these uh, four blood moons. Yes, um, which that this year. Yes, and uh, which coincide with certain feast dates and yep. and, and throughout history. Though the uh, the lining up of the blood moons with these feast dates, I believe one coincided with the birth of Israel, another coincided with the war of uh, the Six Day War in 1967. Correct. Uh, so you know all of these things that seem to be coming together. Um, it is. Uh, it, it, it certainly makes you stop and think, wow, I mean, this, you know, I, and I think people feel it in their gut. There's, we're on the precipice of something, yes. but they can't put their finger on it. Yes, no, no, Richard, brilliantly stated. You're absolutely right. And, you know, you use the word coming together, so let me use a, a singular word for that word. Convergence is the word I use. This convergence of prophecies. I mean, we're the only generation in the history of mankind to see these prophecies of the end times converge to a pinpoint. And, and we're living it. We're watching it unfold. You mentioned Jonathan Kahn. He's in my book, as a matter of fact. I interviewed him for the book, and he's in the movie. My book has been turned into a documentary DVD uh, by award-winning film producer George Escobar and WND Films. And Jonathan Kahn is in that movie with me, explaining the Jewish mindset of well, all of this. You're both so, doing amazing work, Carl. Um, i got to fly here, but uh, we'll, yeah. t- we'll talk again soon. Thank you so much for okay, tonight. Thank you for having me, Richard. God bless you. Carl Gallops. Tim Spreen, thank you. Uh, back next week, talking about the ancient giants who ruled America. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.